Um, so, we are in, uh, still in our series called Beyond Fortune Cookie Faith. Um, and the idea behind the series, if you're, if you're new to us today, um, the idea is there are certain verses that are incredibly popular. We love them, but maybe we don't really understand them. Maybe we've treated them like a fortune cookie, and, and we've just kind of taken them at face value instead of digging in a little bit to see what they really mean. And so, as you know, we've tried to open a fortune cookie almost every Sunday, see what it says, and then uh, the real challenge will be, can I use it in my sermon today? We will see. Okay, here we go. This one might be a tough one. Um, a friend's success will benefit you. A friend's success will benefit you. Okay, that's very selfish. I don't usually preach that way. So uh, we'll see what happens to that, all right? A friend's success will benefit you. See what happens. Okay, uh, today I'm doing one of the most famous verses. It's used all the time. Um, if you would turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11. It's a verse that's used often. You think of it, uh, you put it on graduation cards. People look it up and think about it when they think about their future and not really knowing what's going to happen. And I was looking at, I was looking at uh, Christianity Today, and every year they publish the most popular, most searched verses on the uh, the Bible app, the U version app. Maybe some of you have it on your phone. It's a great, it's a great little app. It has reading plans on there. Uh, if you don't have it. It's a great way to, to kind of stick to your Bible reading program. So check it out. But in any case, it's free. Um, they have reported the top verses that are uh, looked up every year. And in 2017, the top, this is across the world, the top verse that was looked up was uh, Joshua 1. I think it's verse 9, right? Be strong and courageous. You know, that was the number one verse looked up in 2017. The number two verse that was looked up is the one we are looking at this morning. It means the second most searched verse for the entire year on that app that millions of people have downloaded and use is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Second most looked up verse. In some parts of the world, it is the top most looked up verse in the Bible. What is it about this verse that we find so compelling? That, that, that we need to think about it and meditate on it and memorize it and claim it as our own. And are we doing that rightly? Are we really understanding what's going on in Jeremiah chapter 29? Um, so let me say from the get-go... Um, I, I think we don't have it all the way clear. I, I, I don't think we always use this in the right way because normally we make this verse about my future, my plans. It, it's who are you going to marry? Where are you going to move? What job are you going to get? It, it, what college are you going to go to? It's those kind of things. So if you're a young person, this is really a great message for you, I hope, especially because um, th- this is about plans, God's plans, your plans. How do you work all that out? I think the big question we all have is, does God have a plan for my life? And if so, what is it? What's God's plan for my life? I think even as adults, there, there are certain times and seasons in life where we know there's big transitions going on. 
It's that promotion at work. It's that change in careers. It's moving to a new place. And you ask the question, what's God's plan for my life? I just want to know. And you turn to Jeremiah 29, 11. I think this verse is about God's plans for our life. But I think we have to be careful and understand what it's talking about so we can come to the right conclusions about it. So if you would turn, and hopefully you're in Jeremiah 29, we're going to read some verses and work through uh, part of this chapter. Uh, So we'll start with Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, And all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Shapham, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, try saying that, okay, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You know, I stand in front of the mirror and practice those names. You got this, Nile. You got this, okay? Um, not really. I just fake it. Um, okay, and uh, okay. So we'll stop right there. So, so here it is: a long list of names. But if I can summarize up what that says briefly, it says uh, to the exiles, to the exiles. I mean, this, there's a letter from Jeremiah the prophet to the exiles in Babylon, and so this is to Jewish exiles. There you are. Are you a Jewish exile? What is a Jewish exile? Well, let's review that. So um, Israel and Judah, divided kingdom, you know, they, they get into these cycles of disobedience, and then God judges them, and something bad happens, and then they repent, cry out to God for help. And they're in this kind of this vicious cycle. And they do this for years and years and years and years, and it's bad. And eventually God keeps his promise. In Leviticus, he says, I'm going to have another nation come in, and they're going to take you out of the land. The land that I promised you, the promised land. They're going to take you away from it and take you to a place you don't know. This was the promise, or maybe the threat, or maybe the warning. And and it happened. Israel and Judah, you know, they're worshiping other gods, and, 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 and they're corrupting their own worship. And King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and, and he deports 10,000 of them. It's 10,000 of the best people. Uh, They left the poor. They left the undesirables. Redistributed some of the land. But they also demolished the temple. And demolished buildings in Jerusalem. And they take them all away. So these people have lost their center of worship. It feels like their God is lost. It feels like Nebuchadnezzar and his God is one. And they're gone. And now they're in Babylon. And the surrounding cities and villages of Babylon. And they just want to go home. I'm not a Jewish exile. You're probably not either. But regardless, when I read First Peter, when I read the book of Hebrews chapter 13, I get called an exile. And you get called an exile. One of the things New Testament authors do is call us exiles. Now this is interesting because of this. If you were going to be an exile in the Old Testament, a Jewish exile, the way you become an exile, I'm going to boil it down, make it really simple. It's really easy. You sin. 
You sin, you become an exile. You know, God removes you from the land, and it's your sin's fault. It's your fault. You did this. And this is the consequence of your sin. In the New Testament, being an exile means I'm not part of this world. I'm passing through this world, and I'm on my way to a heavenly country. That's, that's Hebrews 13, right? It's, it's that looking forward to the, to the new country, heaven, living by faith. And you're in exile because of that. You don't belong here. And the reason you don't belong here is because of your faith. Sin didn't get you to be in exile like the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's faith. When you exercise faith in Christ, you get transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're new. And, and that's how it works. So now I have this new kingdom. I have this new, this new Lord that I am following and it's not the world. It's not the prince of the power of the air. I, I don't just do what the culture does. Christ is my king. And so, even though we're not exiles, there's a word here for us. But I think we've got to be careful. Because again, I hope by the end of this message that you look at it and you say, you know, maybe I've used Jeremiah 29.11 in a selfish way. But then again, it wasn't written to me originally. You ever send cards to people? Probably birthdays, your mom, your dad, get well cards. Let me tell you a card I've never received on my birthday. It's this one. Never received a pink card before. I hope I don't. Don't get any ideas. This card says, you're a princess in every way. And you're celebrated with joy. Someone liked that, yes. And you're celebrated with joy today. Happy birthday. Never buy me a princess card or I will never talk to you again. Never. Never. And if I'm sick and I'm in the hospital, maybe you pick out a card like this. It has the arc on the front. It says, I hope you're feeling better. I'm trying to figure out what the arc has to do with feeling better. Oh, they made it through the flood. That's what it is. Okay, never mind. Like, no, I got a cold or not feeling good. It says, uh, thinking of you on such a fine day and wishing you well until the next time we play. I don't do play dates. I don't get out toys. I play with toys with my kids. Nobody else. Maybe my kids could send me this card. You know, this would be from one of my kids. This would be from Grayson to me. That, that's what it would be. You know, playtime. May you soon feel well. If you send this to me, I will never talk to you again. If Grayson sends it to me, I'm going to say, get the toys out. Let's have some fun. Okay? When I feel better. All right? Who, who we're writing to is important. What the card says is important. You don't send a pink card to a man. Don't do it. And so Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is writing to the people of Israel, speaking for the Lord, and he's saying, this is what the Lord says to you, Jewish exiles. I'm not a Jewish exile. You're not a Jewish exile. But there are lessons here, general lessons for exiles. So I want to be careful how I understand Jeremiah 29.11, lest I send a pink card to a person. Don't do it. All right, what's it saying? Let's get into the content of 29. You know, the fan's wonderful, but it's blowing my Bible around, so hopefully we'll be all right here. Okay, um, verse 5. This is what God says to the exiles who've been removed from their home, are homesick, have no temple to worship in, and are generally down, very down. He says, verse 5, build homes and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. 
take wives and have sons and daughters. That's not a polygamy thing. That's like all of you, plural, take wives. Uh, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay. I love this because, I mean, the people want to go home. And in a minute, we're going to find out it's going to be 70 years before they go home. And so God says, you need to make a good life in the city that you find yourself in, whether it's Babylon or a little village outside. You need to make a life there. Buy a house, plant a garden, get married. And it seems like so, that this just seems so simple, right? Like God has plans for you, but, but part of the plan is just make a good life. Get married. Make a choice. And so, so that, I think this gets a little bit of how I view God's will in general. So, so you'll forgive me if you tend to see it differently, but when I read about God's will in the Bible, it seems like I need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. But then God gives me choices. It's not that there's only one person that I can marry, and I've got to figure out who that person is I'm going to marry and make sure that that happens, because if I miss that one person, I, I've blown it. If you walk down the aisle and you got married, that's the person. That's the one for you. That's your soulmate or whatever other mushy thing you want to say. That's the one that God has given you because you took your vows to that person, right? So it's not that I've got to figure out the right one. Now, God does give parameters, Right? He gives parameters on who you, the kind of person you should marry. Because in this passage, he says, you need to multiply. And so, so the implication here is, if you read between the lines, he's saying, for your Jewish sons, you need to find Jewish women. Because we can't let the Jewish line die out. Now you might say, well, is that forbidding interracial marriage? Of course not. It's preserving the line of the Messiah. Right? Jesus has not been born yet, and the line has to keep going. So we get those wonderful genealogies in Matthew and Luke, right? Um, this is what we're talking about. It's, it's so that you don't marry somebody that's worshiping a little stone statue of, of a thing that can't do anything for you. Don't do that. It, it's purity of worship. And so the New Testament says, um, I think in 1 Corinthians it says, um, if, if your husband dies, she's free to marry whoever she wishes, but he must be in the Lord. In the Lord of the same family of God. In other words, it's like God says, you got choices. You got some good choices. Make a wise one. But choose what city you're going to live in, what college you're going to go to, who you're going to marry. Make a wise choice within the wise parameters of God. But you have freedom. Build a house. Plant a garden. I'm not telling you what vegetables it's got to be. You don't like tomatoes. You don't like broccoli. Don't put them in there. It's fine. Somebody else can do that. Plant yourself a garden, though, because you're going to be here a while. You see, he's not dictating every little detail of your life, but he is showing you the kind of life that you should be pursuing. I'm also not implying that singleness is a bad thing. It's actually a gift of God as well. Uh, I'm just going from the text. You know, get married. You know, produce offspring. That's where he's going with this. Um, We dare not lower the bar and say, uh, 
all these different decisions in my life, where I'm going to live, where I'm going to work, what I'm going to do, these are all just like secular things. They're not, no, no, they're spiritual things. They're important things. Think about them in those terms. And I also love this. Did you notice that he says, seek the welfare of the city? Whatever city you're in, pray for it. I love that. I mean, God is consistent because in the New Testament, uh, Paul says, pray for your leaders. Respect the emperor. Honor government officials. It's very consistent that you want to seek the good of your country, the good of the city that you're in. I mean, you can see the Jewish people going, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. Nebuchadnezzar is not my king. Not my king. Where do we hear echoes of that, right? Um, <laughs> sorry, that was a little on the nose, wasn't it? Um, but God says, if you're living here, and it's going to be 70 years, you might as well be seeking the good of Babylon. Because if Babylon goes downhill, guess what? You're going to go downhill too. So maybe you've heard some people say that somebody is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. May that never be said of Christians. We've got to be of earthly good. We have to be pro uh, whatever country you're from, who happens to be America, pro-America for those of you that are Americans. We have to be for this country, want it to prosper, because our prosperity is connected to it in some ways. It's not the end all, and we dare not make it the end all. But for the time we're here as exiles, let's do what we can for the Northwoods. Let's make it a better place. Let's invest. Let's pray. Let's do what we can. That's what we're called to. Make a good life. Um, I'm going to put my bookmark in here. Here we go. Okay. Um, verse 8 and 9. We haven't got to our verse 11 yet, but I think hopefully you're tracking with me here. Um, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Wow, you know, I didn't send them. So I'm reading between the lines, but I think we can all conclude pretty much with certainty that there were prophets, quote-unquote, that were in Babylon, and they were saying things like this. God's going to take you back to Israel soon. Don't worry. You'll be back in your homes in Jerusalem. Everything's going to be okay. Yahweh's going to get you out of here. And Yahweh says, I didn't send them. That's not my message. You're going to be here 70 years, so you better get comfortable. All right? Don't be duped. There's the point. Don't be duped. If you want to derail God's plan for your life, then listen to somebody that's become untethered from the word of God, and they will take you somewhere. And they're going to say things that you want them to say, things that you want to hear. That's the problem with being duped. You you hear a false prophet, a false teacher, and they're saying things that sound so good. I want to go back to Jerusalem. You say we're going back maybe, maybe next month, maybe a couple months. Really? Good. I want to go. And... This is the problem of false teachers. Somehow they always figure out what people want to hear, and they tell them, and they gather a big crowd. That's the way it works. I just got invited last month uh, to a uh, Christian science meeting that was being held somewhere in Three Lakes. Uh, One word for that, cult, you know? 
and not because not because they control their members. I'm not saying cult like that. I understand that. You know, um, some, some cults are very controlling. I don't think they do that. But to say that sin and sickness is an illusion, and then if we think and pray appropriately, we can, we can get rid of those illusions and thus we become well. I mean, that is not. That's false teaching. It's false teaching, and it's right here. You know, you you, you can do that. If you, if you want to find a pastor that will bless a same-sex marriage, you don't have to go far. It's right here. I know it doesn't sound very charitable, but I guess I'm of the opinion that shepherds ought to shoot the wolves, you know? And, 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 and that's what we do. Like we point out this is false teaching. Don't do it. Don't be duped. This derails your life when you think that God is all about making you prosperous and wealthy that derails your life don't be duped god has plans for you and they don't include false teaching realize this god will tell you the hard truth even if you don't like it and if you like everything you read in the bible if you agree and feel good about every single thing you read in the bible chances are you're probably distorting the bible to make it say what you want it to say The Bible ought to be read and it ought to challenge you. I just read last week, just last week. Now I'm name dropping, but I think it's okay. Um, I love Pastor Andy Stanley. I listen to him. I've done small groups on him. Um, That guy is becoming untethered from the Old Testament. I I I just heard him say this. You know, he just said, I think we need to proclaim Jesus. And he used the word unhitch. We need to proclaim Jesus and unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, because there's a lot of problematic, he used the word problematic, but you did use the one unhitched. There's some hard stuff in the Old Testament. So we need to make that less of a focus in how we preach and teach. No. And I'm not saying he's going to hell and, and, and all, I'm not, I'm not saying that. As far as I know, he's a true believer and he wants to proclaim the word of God and that Christ saves people, and I'm glad for that. But, but no to the false teaching. No to that. Let's be careful. Don't be duped. There's a reason you read your New Testament and it tells you all over the place to beware false teaching. There's a reason for that. Let's be careful. Okay. Here's the part you've all been waiting for. Jeremiah 29:11. We'll read 10 and 11 here. And uh, I, I hope, I'm super excited about this. So take a look at this. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, notice 70, um, in, in the Old Testament, seven was like a Sabbath, you know, and so, so God predicted all this stuff and said, you're going to have a Sabbath from your own land. Oh my goodness, that hurts. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem, Israel. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And so for those that think Jeremiah 29, 11 is referring to what job you're going to have next year, where you're going to move to, and who you're going to marry, I hope you can see that that is way too self-centered. Way too self-centered. And not nearly enough God-centered. This is to the Jewish exiles. You've been sending a pink card. It's got to stop. 
How about you think of it like this? God has plans. And in 70 years, you're going to return to the land. That was the promise. That was the plan. You're going back to Israel, back to the promised land, land flowing of milk and honey. This is your land that God covenanted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's yours. You're going to go back to it. I'm not going to go back to Israel. So what's God's plan that I, that's bigger than me that I get to think about? You ever thought about the story of the Bible, God's story in the Bible? Can we bring the image up? Hopefully. Um, The Bible tells a beautiful story, a tragic story, but a story that ends well. It tells a story of conflict, a story of victory. And it goes something like this. In the beginning, God created everything, and it was good. He ordered the world perfectly. A man and a woman in a perfect relationship, so innocent that he didn't need to wear clothes perfect in a perfect place where plants grew and they could name animals and, and and there weren't predators tearing into each other creation it was good it was perfect and yet there was a serpent in the garden who tempted people tempted adam and eve and the only thing they had to do right the only test that was in their life was not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the serpent tempted them And they listened, and they ate, and all of humanity fell with them. That's called the fall. And people live in the fall. When people become addicted, that's the fall. When people make a choice to hurt somebody, that's the fall. When abuse happens, that's the fall. When marriages break, something of the fall happened there. This is the fall. When you lie to make yourself look better, that's the fall. When you cheat to get ahead, that's the fall. And it's the reality that we live in every day. It's the fall. Creation groans. And yet, part three is redemption. Now, if I was making this chart, I love this chart. I think this is from Christianity Today. I love this chart, but I would have put put, um, Israel right between the fall and redemption, or maybe I would have called it the law. I would have put like that where that white line is between fall and redemption. I would have put Israel right there. God's people... He gives them the law. Did they keep the law? No, they failed miserably, as do all of us. Which means we need redemption. Christ came, lived a perfect life, died being sinless on the cross for your sin and mine, to redeem us, to free us from the fall so that we can live a new resurrected life in him. That's redemption, being bought back from slavery. And then, again, if it was me, I would have put the church right between redemption and restoration, right there. I would have put that white line, would have been the church. That's you, that's me. We're after Christ, but restoration hasn't happened. Jesus has not been uh, crowned officially. He is the king, and and he sits at the right hand of the Father, but one day he will rule visibly as the king. And that's the day we wait for, the new heavens and the new earth. We're not there yet, but, but this is the story. Now, I'm going to need a prop for this next part. So give me one second. All right. All right. I grew up, I grew up, and uh, maybe you did too like this. You got together with your friends, and you, you, you role-played. You played 
cowboys and Indians. You played with the little army men. Uh, you had little pop guns and you would run around. And when you saw a movie that you really liked, like Star Wars, you would pick up a stick and it would be your lightsaber. And one guy would say, I'm Luke. Another guy would say, I'm Han Solo. And, and, and you would all have your own roles, you know. And everybody would pick the best guys. And then I come along and, like, I get to be, I don't know, Greedo or something terrible. You know, I don't know. Um, but but um, some people, someone had to be the bad guy. And they're like, fine, I'll be the bad guy, you know. And, 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 and you're doing the lightsaber thing. And you're pretending to be this person that you were so excited about in the movie. And you say, I'm him. That's me. And you called yourself that name. You know you did this. I'm not the only one. This is what we did as kids. And what you were saying in that moment is, I want to live in that story. Because it's exciting. It's good versus evil. The heroes win. I want to live in that story. I want to inhabit that story because it's a good one. And so you role played. I'm telling you, we have the best story. And it's true. It's historical. It's prophetic because we know where it's all going to go. The good guys win. God wins. And so we're in this story and God has given us spiritual gifts. And they're all different. You know, Han Solo doesn't carry one of these. Right? That's not his... That's not his weapon of choice unless your empire strikes back on Hoth and he has to cut open the tauntaun. Okay, there you go. Um, then he uses the lightsaber. But, um, but we all have different gifts. And I'm a talker. You're a server. You're administrative. You do leadership. We all have different gifts. And just because you carry the blaster and you carry the lightsaber and you carry something else, it's all good. Because it's all part of the big story. So the question of Jeremiah 29.11 is, do you want to live in that story? Or, or, or do you want to live in your own story and say, God, how do I fit you into my plans? Which is why most people use Jeremiah 29.11 wrongly. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? They use Jeremiah 29.11 wrongly because they're saying, God, I'll let you into my story. Make me prosperous. That's what you said, right? Verse 11. But I want to be the guy. Oh, don't go to that slide. You can go back one still. Um, I want to be the guy that says, where am I in the story? Because when I sin, when I'm messing up, I don't want to live in that fall stage. I don't want to stay there. I know I mess up every week, but I don't want to live there. I want to live in the redemption stage. I want to proclaim it. I want to live it. When I go to work, I want my life to count for something at work. I want your life to count for something at work. Whatever you do, that you would bring, you would bring the presence of God into the workplace, a redemptive presence, that you would live in that story, that we would work for the restoration of this world, that we would care what happens in the earth that we live in. Because God is a restoring God, and one day he's going to fix it all. So why not start fixing it up now as well as we can? Why not work against injustice? I think Jeremiah 29.11 has got to be one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. If we understand it rightly and don't make it about what I'm doing tomorrow. And I hope you see it too. I'm putting down my lightsaber before someone gets hurt. All right. 
I have no idea what I'm doing with this fortune. We're just, we're just uh, going here, okay? That's a tough one. I think I failed today. All right. Um, finally, lastly, uh, if you look at, the, um, look at the verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14. Here we go. Uh, this is the last part of the letter, and it says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah 29, 11 is bittersweet, isn't it? Because you still got to wait 70 years. I mean, think about that. 70 years. If you were like 20 years old and you got this letter from Jeremiah and from the Lord and, and you read this and you're like, 20, I'm 20 years old, and in 70 years I'm getting out of here. That makes me 90. I may not get back to the land. This might not be in my lifetime. But maybe if I'm thinking about the next generation, my kids, maybe a friend's success will benefit me. Because, because I know God's going to bring my people, the Jewish people, are going to go back to the land. But it's all predicated on this. Will you seek the Lord with all your heart? There's a response required. You want to be part of the story? You want to be part of redemption and restoration? It requires a response from you. Will you seek the Lord with all your heart. It starts with faith. I trust in Jesus for my salvation and him alone. And he saves you. Seek the Lord. And then I spend my days, whatever I'm doing, and with my family, with my job, whatever I'm up to, I seek the Lord in all those things. That's the required response for you today. And I hope that maybe there's something the Lord is impressing upon you that you should seek him in. I hope that there's, perhaps there's a battle that God has asked you to fight. Maybe there's a friend you need to love. Someone you need to help. Someone you need to have a conversation with. So my encouragement to you today Get out your lightsaber or your blaster or whatever it is God made you good at. Your computer, your administrative skills, your leadership skills, your teaching skills, your service skills, your hospitality, your love. And use it. And show people redemption. Show people hope. And show them that they're living in the wrong story. Let me pray for you. Father, so many of us, and and I, I put myself in this, the temptation is to live for me and to try to plug you in somewhere. The temptation is, God, for us to treat you in such a way that we become like a, 
like a gray chair Christian. We come in, we do our time, sit in the chair, get our sermon, and get out. Lord, may it not be. You've gifted us. You've redeemed us. You've given us a story to tell. And it's a grand story. It's bigger than the best novel, movie, whatever. And we know it's true. We look around and we see people's lives changing. And we know they're living in the story. We also see people being duped and deceived. And we know they're living in the wrong story. And that breaks your heart. And may it break our heart. So Lord, may we beware the wolves. May we beware the message of the world that says it's all about you. And instead make it all about our God. Father, would you help us? And perhaps this would be, for some people here, the start of getting very serious about you. I pray that for my children. I pray that for all the young people in this church. And I also pray it for the adults. May we be part of the right story. In Jesus' name. And would you keep your head down and your eyes closed?